Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I want to help you organize a plan to become the kind of leader you want to be in the nonprofit sector. First of all, thanks for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader or maybe more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are, in fact, on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor. Find the share button within the episode graphic on the device you're listening to this episode right now. Share it with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Once again, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Caitlin Donnelly who brings great experience as the Chief Advancement and Finance Officer for Safe Alliance. But she's also the president of the AFP Charlotte chapter, and she has lots of great ideas about how you can maximize the strategic planning for your donor stewardship. And not only does she bring tactics from her organization and how she utilizes the network that AFP Charlotte has provided, but the real core of our discussion was about National Philanthropy Day and how she has strategically mobilized that event in a way that I'm sure will give you ideas about your donor stewardship plan as well. Let's face it, you've got an event like this in your community, whether it's National Philanthropy Day or something else that lifts up the kind of community partners and donors you want to be associated with. And so are you just showing up and attending and applauding and going home, or are you utilizing an event like this to lift up current and prospective donors in your community. That's what we talk about. More reason to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 132. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out all about the resources that Caitlin and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work she's doing at Safe Alliance, as well as her work at AFP Charlotte and serving as the host for National Philanthropy Day in this community. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so you can get every week episodes just like this one and other resources we're putting together. And you can follow us on any of the primary social media channels. We're on YouTube now for those of you that like to consume your podcast content in that setting. And also feel free to schedule time to talk to us. Uh, We'd be delighted to talk about your nonprofit organization and ways we might be able to help you. And I'd especially enjoy talking to you about your leadership journey. We've got our next cohort coming together for the spring of 2022. So if that is of interest, make sure you go to our homepage, click on the find out more about the Mastermind program, and we'd be happy to entertain that conversation and see if it's a good fit for you. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Caitlin Donnelly. Caitlin, thank you for joining me on the path. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Caitlin, I'm excited about this conversation. You have a keen eye for donor stewardship. You've got a lot of ideas that I know our listeners are going to benefit from because you're doing this kind of work. You're on the front line of fundraising community leadership in a number of ways. And what a perfect week to release this episode as National Philanthropy Day is celebrated here in Charlotte but it's being celebrated all over the world. And I love the way you've incorporated National Philanthropy Day in your strategic ideas around donor stewardship. 
all of our listeners should consider ways they can better engage their donors and community partners. And what a wonderful vehicle this provides. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Caitlin, why did you get into nonprofit work? You could have gone in any number of professional paths. So what brought you to this nonprofit leadership world? Yes, well, I had some luck along the way. I kind of fell into this world. And I want to give credit to Dr. Jack Eby at Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, Quebec, because I started my path thinking I was going to be a professional flute player. And during my audition, he kind of talked about the philosophy of the small liberal arts school and saying, you know, you can go on a conservatory track and you can, you know, be a technical expert and learn all of this. However, the liberal arts education is going to help you learn how to open your mind, how to look differently, how to think differently. And our job as educators is to help you get access to different experiences so you can go out and change the world. So in getting into that program, got involved in the music um, student-run concert series, discovered there was a business side of music. And from there, fell into fundraising and then really took advantage of that education I had and became curious and not only loved fundraising and connecting donors to, you know, changing the world and making philanthropy work, but also getting to be a part of changing the world myself and getting to, you know, experience a lot of different causes and sectors throughout, you know, the Charlotte community, but, you know, that are going to have an impact on the world itself. Love that story. As a fellow liberal arts major, English in my case, I'm delighted to think about there's a lot of talent in all of the academic areas. And so you brought your musical talent to an understanding of that business, as you put it, and good for the sector that you decided to stay with it. And you have been successful in every step along the way and now lead the philanthropy program at Safe Alliance. For those who don't know what is Safe Alliance. Safe Alliance is Mecklenburg County's largest domestic violence and sexual assault, sexual assault serving nonprofit. We reach roughly 16,000 individuals a year through our continuum of services. These range from our 24-hour hotline to our domestic violence shelter to our court program that helps people secure their domestic violence protective orders, legal assistance, attorney representation, and then our sexual trauma resource center that provides advocacy, counseling, and hospital accompaniment for those who are experiencing a recent trauma or something that happened years ago that they're just trying to seek support for. And we are really grateful that we're able to be here to just walk along the journey with survivors and help make that healing journey just a little bit less challenging. Such important work you do, and and it's not the thing that uh, we often want to face in our communities, but it's such a reality that uh, individuals particularly are dealing with. So grateful for that and grateful for organizations like yours, Caitlin, across the country and certainly around the world. And and I guess it's a unique dynamic because, uh, let's face it, sometimes that's a difficult subject, I guess, to bring to donors. Uh, Have you found that to be an issue sometimes that it's not a, quote, popular uh, philanthropic topic, but yet it's so important? And I guess that's the message you have to convey. 
Yes, I would say that's probably been one of the unique challenges. Um, I've been in this role for coming on four years now and previously was working with the Humane Society of Charlotte. And everyone wants to talk about their cats and dogs and puppies and kids. (laughs) And (laughs) when you switch over and you are the person at the party who wants to talk about domestic violence and assault that's taking place in the community, it is very different. People are not geared towards wanting to talk about that. What we have found is that, you know, you have to find different ways to get people exposed to it, get people engaged in the work, but people are really generous. And once people kind of learn more about what's going on, they tend to get more involved and deeply passionate and not saying other sectors aren't either, but it's definitely, it's a tough topic for people to talk about. One of the silver linings of this global pandemic that we at Safe Alliance are incredibly grateful for is that domestic violence really came to the forefront as a community issue. When the lockdowns first took place, there were lots of national news stories talking about how dangerous it was for victims of domestic violence to be stuck in their homes with their abusers. And a lot of their natural supports are taken away instantly by not being able to get to school, not being able to get to work, not seeing their hairdresser or being able to go out and you know socialize with their friends and family. So we were really able to take what was previously pre-pandemic, a very private family topic to this was now a community topic that most people were talking about. And we saw a similar kind of, you know, uplifting for sexual assault survivors with the Me Too movement. So, you know, I'm very hopeful that, you know, this has hopefully changed that private, you know, not hushed talk, you know, taboo topic to really, this is more normalizing it. And really victims are the ones who are going to benefit most because they're the ones who are trying to figure out if they're the only ones and how they get help. So, you know, we're just really grateful to the increased awareness and, you know, relevance of this topic in our community. Well, I'm glad to lift it up as well, Caitlin, you're right. It, it's a silver lining perhaps of a difficult time period for everyone in this pandemic, but perhaps there are topics like, like this one that will now get uh, the attention it deserves and, and hopefully increasing preventative activities like the programs that uh, Safe Alliance is helping communicate. And again, you have done a very skillful job of not just communicating these issues and helping uh, potential donors understand it. You've been really good at the donor stewardship kind of process. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you in this episode about kind of strategic donor stewardship. And I believe you have focused on three distinct things that nonprofit leaders need to think about when they are trying to steward donors. So I wonder, let's talk about them. You've got three. Uh, start with number one. What is the number one thing that you think is important as we focus on donor stewardship as a nonprofit leader? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to just be thoughtful and meaningful in your thank yous. And so that can take a lot of different approaches. Um, For some donors, they really may want to get a quick email that is immediately, you know, that comes from you the moment their, you know, gift comes in through your website. For other donors, it's going to be the handwritten note that is sent in the mail or the note from a client who is, you know, receiving the services. Um, So really thinking through what are the various tools and thoughtful ways that a donor might want to be thanked, and then how can you, you know, gather up and have some of those elements ready so that when the gifts do come in, you can turn them around pretty quickly. That's perfect. And and obviously one size does not fit all. And sadly, some organizations, I think, kind of default to an automated thank you letter printed, you know, version of some kind. So it sounds like you decide both the different types of thank you. So to the extent you can, though, you 
literally matching up that you know Mr. Ms. Jones would be more likely to respond favorably to an email versus the Smith family uh, would prefer the handwritten note? And we try to note those preferences in our donor database, but we also make some assumptions based off of how people are giving. Those who are giving in a digital environment, we tend to think want to be thanked in a digital environment. Where those who are giving through the mail, um, we look at the mail, t- you know, kind of, we use that as a cue to try to, you know, systemize, you know, how we do our thank yous. But then the other thing is we test. Um, we like to try a lot of different things and we see what's working and then we kind of shift in that approach. Love that. Again, being intentional about the process and again, getting beyond just a thank you letter or thank you note, but literally what is the best way to acknowledge this gift? And I'm sure that keeps these donors even more engaged. So thank yous, uh, number one in our donor stewardship top three list. How about number two, Caitlin? What's the second thing you focus on in donor stewardship? The second thing is really about having a plan and having a system to ensure that we can actually execute the thank yous. Because, you know, I talked about a lot of customization and how we tried to do this. If you, we have to pull it off and it has to be consistent and donors have to know that they will be thanked when they get our gifts from us. So we have a relatively simple donor stewardship plan where we break up, you know, your gift of, you know, zero to 500, 500 to 1,000, 1,000 to 5,000. And we kind of look at it from those gradients of what are the activities that will take place that will trigger certain responses and thank yous from the agency. Um, so looking at that, and we look at this, our goal is to try to get that, you know, first acknowledgement letter out within 48 hours of the gift. But then also, how can we systemize this and how can we make it feel really custom while also using the technology that we have today? Um, you know, we definitely want to have that personal connection. But at the same time, ensuring that we get a thank you to every donor is also really important. So we use a mix of mailed letters, emails, and then we engage different levels of our staff and our board in the stewardship process. And I think definitely ensuring that we've got board members engaged in calling and thanking donors is really critical for the donors. They appreciate it. But I think it really helps our board members too. It builds their confidence. They love having these conversations with donors. And, you know, the reports back that we get from our board members saying, oh, I just talked to so-and-so. They really, you know, we're just so grateful for the call and they really just love the work that we're doing. It really invigorates not only the donor, but also the volunteer in that equation. Love that. And so uh, the system allows you to, again, differentiate about different dollar amounts in terms of the gift. I'm guessing, Caitlin, every donor gets the immediate kind of within 48 hours, the, the mailed receipt of or acknowledgement of the gift, but then you're saying there could be a secondary acknowledgement. In other words, would that, let's take that board example. Uh, you send the immediate thank you letter, and then you notify the board member that, hey, the gift has been made, and would you make the call, or how does that work? Yes, it's a complex process, and that's why I say have a plan and a system. Um, so yes, every donor kind of gets that base level, you know, autom- not automatic, but standard, you know, acknowledgement letter. Then from there, um, from a staff perspective, um, we try to notify like our CEO or myself or certain members who have that key relationship. We notify them as soon as possible when the gift comes in. So sometimes they can beat the you know standard letter in the mail. Sometimes you know they're touching their touch point's going to come three or four days later. But then one of the other things with the system that we think is really important is that if you look, you know, a lot of research says a donor needs to be thanked seven times before they really hear it. 
So we know that we can thank a donor seven times in 48 hours, or we can spread that out over a little bit. And our preference is to spread that out. Um, we want to you know, ensure that they immediately know the impact of their gift, but that we continue to value and thank that over time. Um, so, you know, we look at every Friday where we gather that list of the donations for the week and we send them out to our board and volunteers. And then we have to follow up and remind folks and, you know, kind of look at that. But we know that they've already had a timely response and thank you from the agency. That's fantastic. Uh, so, Caitlin, if I'm on your board, I guess as I get oriented, there's an expectation that I will do thank yous. Is that around the the whole calendar? I mean, year round, I might get a notification from you that, hey, um, we have a thank you we'd like you to do. And and are those thank yous tied to me as a board member? Or in other words, if I know somebody, you're going to tell me to thank the person that I know, or am I going to just expect to do a certain number of thank yous each month? So we do divide up that list um, with board members and we talk to them about, you know, the timeline of giving. We know we're going to be heavier on those calls closer to our um, domestic violence awareness month in October. We know we get more donations as well as the December holiday giving time period and then um, April with our sexual assault awareness month and then end of calendar year. So we kind of give them a seasonality expectation. Um, so they can plan their time accordingly. But then when possible, we do try to tie those donations to the people who are going to have the most impact. So if we look at the list of who's been giving, and if we know there's a relationship between a board member and a certain person, we are going to pair them up together. And then we also keep track of which board members called them so that when we're looking maybe a year later at that same donor, we may try to have that same board member call them again and continue that dialogue. And we try to remind them of that fact as well. So as much as possible, we get all of this data into our donor database so that we can refer back to it. It's fantastic. Again, as you said, there's a complexity to this process, but it pays off, right? And again, I think, a lot, I think a lot of organizations stop, well, I just don't have the capacity to do a system like that. But how can you not maybe consider these opportunities? Because I'm guessing, have you seen your retention numbers increase, Caitlin? Or are there any other evidence that, that this is working? Our retention numbers are increasing. Um, they, you know, one to two percentage points a year, um, but that is something we're always looking at. I think the biggest one is our revenue. In the last three years, our non-event-based revenue has gone up 150%. And when I look across the board at what was the one or two specific tactics we did differently, the biggest one we point to and look at is our donor stewardship plan has been in effect for almost three years now. Wow. And I'm yeah. sure the, the evidence of the retention demonstrates you're not churning donors like so many organizations do. You're taking care of the donors you have, and they're literally given more. Absolutely. And we do, you know, our stewardship is heavier geared towards those of the higher dollar value than those of, you know, some of the lower ones. But we sure. look at what are the automated ways and what are some of those other approaches that we can do with donors of a smaller amount just to keep them engaged and, you know, start to develop and hopefully upgrade them along the way. Well, let me ask you a quick question before you get to number three. This donor acknowledgement plan is literally a document, a process document that yes. um, someone joining your team could follow along because again, I think a lot of nonprofits don't even have a policy or process at all. And so you've taken the time literally to spell this out to be intentional. And now it just runs, uh, it sounds like very smoothly. 
Yes. I mean, not without us kings like every organization, <laughs> right. but it's, it is built into our annual advancement plan that is vetted by our development committee and um, shared with our board each and every year. And then we also reiterate it during our board orientation, as well as our board retreat to really keep that top of mind. Yeah, I'm delighted to lift that up. And I hope our listeners are indeed listening to this point, because I bet many of them don't even have a policy. And that's not intended as a criticism, but that's why they're listening to this episode. What can you do to at least put some of these processes in place, write them down and make it in in a, a method that you can evaluate as you have done throughout your tenure at Safe Alliance. So fantastic stuff. There's one more though, Caitlin, tell me your third key to donor stewardship. The third one is to be creative and be adaptable. So as we were looking at this system and, you know, with the whole point of donor stewardship is you want to be able to report back to your donors, the impact of their gift and, you know, continue that touch point long after their gift. And so that the next time they're hearing from you isn't when you're asking them for another gift. And so we, you know, pre-pandemic, we're able to, you know, schedule coffees, have meetings, try to get more face-to-face gatherings. As we moved into the pandemic and that became something that was just more challenging and safety precluded it, we looked at how do we shift our programming to a virtual space and, you know, look at different ways to engage. So we look at on a quarterly basis, who are those key donors that we want to, you know, report back on some information. So we look at always doing a quarterly update and then making sure that this is getting out in multiple fashions so that we can get the information to the donors and then invite back some participation. So we mail a letter, we send an email, but then we also will have these small Zoom gatherings and we're looking forward to bringing them back in person where we're just going to get together for coffee and chat on the Zoom platform with a couple other key donors just to talk about some of the updates and changes in how we're doing services and how we've really had to adapt and respond rapidly. So that's a quarterly process, you say, in terms of this donor feedback kind of loop that you've created? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, that it strikes me as a wonderful strategy, and I don't think a lot of organizations have any mechanism for donor feedback. So how do you pick those quarterly uh, participants? As I'm guessing it's just kind of you want to get a variety of donors, new and veteran and others, or, or how do you literally choose those folks that join you quarterly? a very inclusive approach and we kind of throw it out to our larger list of a thousand plus donors and we don't really restrict it and we kind of watch and see who's responding and we're we're honestly continually surprised at the number of institutional families and um, individual donors who um, join in so we can end up with some really unique and eclectic groups and that actually makes it even better Um, So, you know, not really trying to put a whole lot of effort into curating who's in that room, really just kind of leaving it open for, you know, just very basic dialogue. Yeah. Again, I would encourage our listeners to think about what are you doing to get donor feedback? And I've heard examples of surveys and things like that, but that strikes me as what you're communicating, your willingness to take feedback to your entire donor base, which I think is a positive And then you're offering this opportunity on a quarterly basis. I can sign up in essence, right, Caitlin? If I'm a donor Mm -hmm. and I want to engage further, you're going to give me a quarterly opportunity to do so. Absolutely. We're going to do that. And then we also, you know, in a lot of our touch points are asking people want to come in for tours or virtual tours of our facilities and, you know, different ways that you can kind of engage that way as well. Yeah. You turn it into additional cultivation, don't you, for their further? Yes, we do. That's, That's beautiful. 
Um, Kaylin, those are fantastic. And so you have warmed up our listeners' ears with lots of good ideas about donor stewardship. That's what we're going to hit today for sure. And of course, you're involved in a wonderful donor stewardship activity, which is National Philanthropy Day, celebrated here in Charlotte um, as the president of AFP Charlotte. And so kudos to you for that volunteer effort. And let's start with that question, though. For those listeners not familiar with National Philanthropy Day, Tell us what that is and where it originated. So National Philanthropy Day is a global day of celebration. It was first celebrated in the United States on November 15th and was proclaimed in 1986 by President Reagan. Over the years, communities, as well as the Association of Fundraising Professionals, have really adapted and celebrated this in so many different ways throughout the entire month of November. So each you know, region can have a very different approach to how they look at it, but the commonality amongst all these celebrations are uplifting the various acts of philanthropy that take place in each community. So here locally, our AFP Charlotte chapter, we've been honoring philanthropic work since 1990 and have a distinguished list of 211 award winners that we've honored throughout the years. So this has become an annual event that's grown pre-pandemic. It was um, capping out around eight or 900 individuals. And it's really highlighting the generosity uh, that exists here in the Charlotte community. And that is something that we really built into not only a safe alliance, but every agency I worked with throughout my fundraising career. We've really leveraged this as a great way to just celebrate philanthropy and then really steward and cultivate our donors. Yeah, I absolutely want to lift that up because you have done that in a fantastic manner. Even in, again, National Philanthropy Day has had to be a virtual event both in 2020 and now in 2021. But you you continue to see great support and enthusiasm for the event, even though it has had to be virtual? Absolutely. It is close to being sold out this year, if not already. Um, you know, we actually had to buy an extra allotment of virtual tickets back in October to meet the demand here for the virtual um, celebration that we were having. And same for last year, we were able to continue that, you know, history that we had of everyone coming together, really to honor and celebrate some amazing award winners here. Well, I'm delighted we're going to talk about the strategic opportunities to honor individuals, organizations that deserve to be honored. And of course, I'm going to encourage our listeners to look up National Philanthropy Day. We'll provide information in our show notes so you can find a National Philanthropy Day celebration perhaps near you, or maybe you can help start something to recognize donors that your organization uh, depend on. And of course, they play such a vital role in your community. And as you said, Caitlin, you have taken advantage of National Philanthropy Day as an opportunity to address some of these partnerships who deserve attention and so forth. You know, what I thought we might do is take here in Charlotte, we celebrate nine distinct categories at National Philanthropy Day for individuals and organizations. And you and I talked about this prior to this episode that, you know, the opportunity for you to think about this in terms of diversifying your donor base. There are three awards that I think fall in that category, right? Emerging philanthropists, student philanthropists, champion of diversity. So how have you and Safe Alliance, for example, taken advantage of some of those categories, maybe in a strategic fashion? Yeah. So with those three awards in particular, I think these really go to highlight that, you know, there are many ways to celebrate philanthropy aside from just the largest check being written. 
And, you know, these awards really, you know, allow for lots of various different people to be engaged and involved in philanthropic work and celebrate and highlighted for that, you know, partnership and, you know, the work that they're doing for our community. I think one of the things that's been really unique of how we've really looked at those three awards is we've involved our board and our development committee in this process. And we've really asked and gone out to those committees early on when the nomination process opens to say, who do you think in this community would you want to see up on stage? And of course, I'd love to have those individuals be people who are connected and deeply involved with Safe Alliance. But I also really like to hear about great work being done by other people, our board members and our committee members now. So we kind of, you know, keep this a really open-ended and broad conversation to really figure out how do we bring people to the table? And that's really helped us to, you know, identify some linkages with our board members, connections and people that they're passionate about, as well as causes to figure out if there's an opportunity down the line for us to figure out how to cultivate that relationship further for our organization, as well as celebrate the philanthropic work that's already being done. So you literally orient your board and other key staff to what these categories are. And then, yes, of course, do. that gets their wheels turning, right? In terms of, oh, I know somebody that might be a good candidate. Exactly. Because I, I, I'm afraid and perhaps am guilty myself in past years. This often becomes an exercise that it, uh, as a staff member, we're scrambling at the last minute. You know, who should we nominate this year? But you're being proactive. And I would say what a fantastic idea for any nonprofit leader, if if not National Philanthropy Day, Caitlin, what are the community recognition events? Perhaps your chamber does it or your community foundation has some sort of awards and you've turned it, though, into an orientation for your board. So is that literally each year you might devote some time in a meeting or something or how do you do that? Yes, we try to do it in that January timeframe. The nominations here in Charlotte open up around April. So we like to be getting people thinking ahead and figuring out, you know, what steps might be needed so that we can, you know, hopefully avoid that scramble. Of course, we're always going to be at the last minute getting it done, but, you know, we try to be proactive. Well, and what I'm struck by those three categories you first lift up, Caitlin, too, it forces you to think maybe outside of just the large uh, donor category, which is important. And that is certainly recognized, but the emerging philanthropist who to your organization is relatively new, um, that is making a difference and is kind of first embracing philanthropy or the students, you know, what, what partnership do you have with the, your local university or community college or high schools or whatnot? And of course, diversity, you know, we're trying so hard to do a better job there, but I take it you've had success in those categories too, identifying partnerships as well? Absolutely. And I think this is another great area, you know, keeping your board engaged, but also looking to your other staff members and your direct service staff members, because they know some of those volunteers and they know some of those other people who are really committed to your cause and can really help you identify, you know, some key people who may just be under the advancement team's radar that we just haven't, you know, just haven't risen up to our attention yet. Yeah, such a good reminder. And again, I think sometimes we limit this process to a single or one or two staff members and expect them to to generate these kind of nominations or ideas. But what a wonderful way to orient everybody within the organization, staff, volunteer and board to these categories. And in fact, it may lead to what the second category you and I talk about is partnerships. 
Um, uh, AFP Charlotte recognizes a small business each year. They recognize a philanthropic organization. They also recognize an outstanding volunteer fundraiser. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking every nonprofit leader listening has relationships, I bet, in all three of those categories. But Caitlin, how have you approached those three categories or maybe this partnership concept in general? Yeah. So when we look at those as a team, when we're preparing our nominations, we think through who are those key partners for our agency that we're hoping to renew and keep engaged in our work. And kind of looking at that, you know, short list, we really think through of, you know, have we nominated any of those, you know, businesses or organizations or volunteer fundraisers for the category? But even if not, are we including them and inviting them in the event? Um, we have found that the day of event, it's this is one of the great events because it's a non-ask event. Right, and you're right. able to bring in your partners, invite them to an event where we're just going to talk about great work being done and see if they can see themselves as potentially being a candidate up on stage that year. So we kind of look at it in a two-prong approach of, you know, who's going to sit at the table with us and who are those connections that we want to keep involved for potentially a sponsorship renewal in the coming months or a few things like that. But then we also really talk to them, you know, everyone who joins us for the event, we follow up with them to say, hey, what did you think? What did you, you know, hear, you know, about that? But then we also ask them, who, who do you think should be nominated for this award next year? What are your thoughts around some of these categories? And that's been really fascinating to hear, you know, some of our, you know, close relationships, um, you know, say, oh, well, have you talked about this organization or do you know what they're doing? And then the one that always surprises us is we often will say, well, have you thought of seeing yourself up there? And wow. oftentimes our small businesses and our philanthropic organizations are going, oh, no, I never thought I would be you know, qualified for that. And so it's been such a really powerful piece. So that we almost look at it almost as like a three-year process of leveraging this, of invite someone to see the event, consider them for a nomination, and hopefully they will eventually be awarded. And, you know, we can use that and then continue to leverage and celebrate and highlight. Um, but it's been really powerful to just engage, you know, our close relationships and ask them kind of their feedback on those processes. Fantastic examples, Caitlin. Thank you. Again, it's not just those you nominate, but it's those you invite to join you. And are we taking advantage of, of wonderful events that celebrate philanthropy like this? And you're right, everyone else that attends is taking something in and who knows might be inspired and it sounds like you're intentional. So let me ask you again. So there's a, a follow-up process, I guess, both in inviting people to the event, but it sounds like you're going back to them and saying, what'd you think? And then maybe yes. that leads to even more conversation. That's exactly it. We thank them for joining. Um, hopefully we can put in some note about what we talked about at the event. Again, the virtual environment makes it a little bit different but really just wanting to hear, you know, what were their takeaways from it? And it creates just a natural, um, you know, touch point for stewardship, but also cultivation for the future. Well, as you said, and it's not an ask event. So the pressure's off, if you will. So it allows you to talk about philanthropy in a comfortable way. And it sounds like you're getting a lot of other good ideas of more partners because your current partners say, hey, here's someone else. Maybe you could invite next year to this event or nominate for this event. And that creates a, a truly virtuous cycle of, of activity. Absolutely that. All right. Once again, we're, we're applying the rule of threes here. You had three great ideas about donor stewardship. You're also offering us three kind of categories 
of ideas and activity around National Philanthropy Day itself. This third category you and I've grouped together allows recognition for some of the most significant donors in this community and other communities as well. There's the Outstanding Legacy Award. There's the Outstanding Philanthropist. And of course, there's also recognition of, of a fundraising professional uh, as well. So how do you approach those categories? Those are kind of the big awards sometimes, particularly legacy and outstanding philanthropists. So, you know, in approaching those, we look at who are those key relationships we have within our agency. And we look at it from a very inclusive lens of who is a, you know, significant philanthropist to our agency. And we really do want to make sure that that's not always seen as the person who's writing a million dollar check. That, you know, someone who's giving a very small amount for a sustained period of 10 to 20 years is having that legacy impact on our agency just as much as someone who is giving us that $20,000 gift. Um, so we really look at this as, you know, who are those philanthropists that we want to raise up and highlight? And we really want to, you know, acknowledge and look at the generosity and the spirit that lives in our community here. And so, you know, in doing that piece, one of the great things and how we kind of approach this from a donor stewardship standpoint is we use this to understand and get to know our donors better. This is a great platform to, you know, just have a deeper conversation with our donors to say, you know, we would like to nominate you for this, you know, community award that is selected from past recipients and past winners and, you know, get them involved in helping us write this nomination. And in doing so, getting them involved so that we can learn more about what motivates their giving to Safe Alliance, but also what motivates their giving throughout the community. Um, you know, by getting to ask this question, you get to learn a lot of interesting information about what inspired someone to give. They can help you write the nomination to make it very compelling. And what it really does and has done for us is really helped us to just deepen those relationships as we're trying to uplift and celebrate the overall philanthropic work that's being done. What a wonderful way to personalize the relationship. You're right that those conversations allow you to know uh, what is really behind the generosity of your most significant and enduring donors to your good point. It's not just the one-time big check you're looking at your donor list and thinking about the relationship, how it evolved, starting conversations. And I think that's that's a wonderful way that even if you don't have a National Philanthropy Day in your community, are you going thoughtfully through your list and thinking about the relationship? Because I think, sadly, a lot of times our list uh, is, is a numeric calculation instead of uh, accumulation of relationship building. And, and so again, Caitlin, you're looking at the list every year, not just with, I guess, the award in mind, but it forces you to think about the relationship you have with your top donors. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things here in Charlotte, we, you know, some donors don't want that recognition. So you also yeah, have point. to think through of, you know, how do you honor them? And, you know, obviously ask them and get their permission, but be prepared that they may say, you know, we really want to sit on the sidelines or we don't want to bring this out. And then that also triggers us to say, why don't you come in, you know, let's be our guests at the event just so you can get to know the event and see what's happening. Um, so also, you know, again, look at it from the long term that there are, you know, ways to kind of keep people involved. Yes. Wonderful advice, Caitlin. And again, a reminder that it's a relationship game that we need to be playing. And even if we don't have a, an award 
um, the thoughtful exercise you do on an annual basis has to lead to very positive and, and productive, I guess, relationship management for everybody involved. Um, here in Charlotte, of course, you've used the vehicle that AFP Charlotte conducts, which is a local National Philanthropy Day celebration. And, and it, of course, is a reminder, Caitlin, to your credit, you've gotten involved uh, in a volunteer organization as president now of AFP Charlotte. Why did you first get involved with AFP? Talk about your motivation there, because I think other nonprofit leaders may be thinking about their involvement in community organizations like this one. Well, I first got involved because my boss told me I had to, but <laughs> that's not the reason I stayed involved and certainly not the reason I am president of the chapter today. Um, you know, after that wonderful catalyst of getting involved and getting engaged, I plugged in. I got involved on the National Philanthropy Day Committee very early in my career, as well as several other AFP Charlotte committees. And why I've stayed involved is obviously the ethical and effective fundraising and professional development that the organization puts out monthly, as well as on a global level. But then also the network of other nonprofit leaders who have really helped me to hone, test, and share ideas. Being able to, you know, ask advice about what's working with my organization, with a peer organization, or one in a completely different sector, borrowing those ideas and seeing how we can collectively grow philanthropy here in this community has really has been what has kept me really engaged and inspired to do the work that we do. And then secondly, the reason I'm really proud to lead this chapter is our commitment to IDEA, which is inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, and really looking at the ways that fundraisers can change the shape of access and diversity in our field and recognizing that this is a conversation that goes far beyond fundraising, but we play a critical and ethical role in it that is very challenging and one that we're proud to be part of. Well, maybe that leads to your next answer. Um, if I'm a nonprofit leader, maybe I'm not exclusively a fundraiser. Is AFP still a resource that I should consider uh, joining? I am biased because I'm a fundraiser, but I think anyone who's a nonprofit leader should have an understanding of how to bring in funds for their organization. Right. And having AFP and some fundraising um, background definitely will bolster and strengthen those skills as well as make you a more marketable leader as well and just make you more effective in what you do. I think the other thing too is understanding the donor bill of rights and the ethical and effective practices that are out there. You know, there are, you know, just lots of different ways that we hear about fundraising taking place and being able to know what is the best ROI and way to lead your organization forward will benefit. Such a good reminder. And you're right, whether or not you have the title of fundraising in your uh, career uh, activities, uh, you need to understand it, especially if you aspire to senior leadership in the sector. Uh, and the Bill of Rights, the Donor Bill of Rights is a good reminder of exactly that. We'll certainly put information about AFP in the show notes because there are great resources there, the content you just described, and of course, the networking. Um, you and I both share an affinity for the organization, so glad to lift it up in this conversation. Um, Caitlin, this has been fantastic advice along many categories of donor stewardship and fundraising in general that nonprofit leaders ought to consider and frankly can apply right now. That's what is uh, uh, the value of this conversation. Whether or not you have National Philanthropy Day coming up or not, you could apply these great ideas throughout your nonprofit uh, and fundraising plan in particular. 
let me shift to the kind of final question I ask a lot of my guests and Caitlin, you too. I know you run into people who come up to you and say, hey, Caitlin, I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership. How do you respond or what advice do you offer someone who's thinking along those lines? So my advice would be to keep learning, be adaptable, and always ask questions. Don't be afraid to you know, dig in and figure out different ways that you can get involved in your organization and be curious about the work that you do and then figure out how do you learn more about it, whether that is through professional development, reading podcasts, or developing relationships throughout the sector and within your organization and people who can help foster that curiosity for you. That sounds like a great script, literally, if you were sitting down with someone who is a nonprofit leader and you pose the questions you just did, that would be a wonderful resource and a learning opportunity for anyone thinking about nonprofit leadership. Caitlin, thank you. And speaking of resources, you know this was coming, but have you found a book that's been particularly helpful to you along your nonprofit journey? I have. It's called Facilitation at a Glance, and it's a little pocket guide to facilitating meetings. And I had to read it in my graduate courses and, you know, kind of didn't, I mocked it at the first reading, but have yet held onto it for almost 10 years <laughs> and have found so much value going back to it at different points in my career and for different times. It's just such a great resource and reminder to um, just help flow work through easier. Oh, I love that. And speaking of practical, because every nonprofit leader is facilitating something, right? Whether it's a team meeting, a board meeting, a retreat, an event, uh, a training, uh, it sounds like that is exactly the kind of practical guy we all need to have in our pocket, so to speak, or on the bookshelf at least. So thank you for that. We'll lift it up. And speaking of lifting up good work, Caitlin, where can our listeners find out more about you and the great work you're doing at Safe Alliance? Absolutely. Well, please visit Safe Alliance's website, www.safealliance.org. And I would be happy to connect with anyone um, individually. And my contact information is all on the website. Thank you, Caitlin. This is wonderful. Uh, congratulations to you on the fantastic work through AFP Charlotte and National Philanthropy Day 2021. And to all of our listeners who are involved in National Philanthropy Day around the world, thank you for what you're doing. And Caitlin, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Caitlin as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can not only guide your professional journey as a nonprofit leader, but help your organization's focus on strategic and intentional donor stewardship plans. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. Go to PattonMcDowell.com and you can find information on Caitlin, the great work she's doing through Safe Alliance. More on National Philanthropy Day everywhere it is celebrated around the world and AFP Charlotte as an opportunity for you to enhance your strategic networking. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with somebody else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com. You'll see the follow button in the top right. It'll link you to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing nearly every month. And if you like this episode, make sure you click on the Episodes button on the podcast web page, and you can scroll down now more than 130 conversations just like this one. 
Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.